from Hayama, Japan, I'm Frank Ling. And from Chicago, Illinois, I'm Charles Lee. And this is the Grok Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's show, Mila and the Fifth Force. In addition, we'll be joined by Dr. Martin Myers, who will talk about vaccine safety. So, stay tuned for all this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And the world famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok Science Show. I'm Frank Ling. And I guess it makes me Charles Lee. How you doing, Frank? I can feel the force. The force of science drawing you closer and closer to its magical web of mysteries. Something like that. Don't you get that sixth sense in you? I, I'm lucky if I, even one of my senses is working on a given day. <laughs> okay, but what about the fifth force? Uh, is this the magical coupling force that will unify all forces in nature? <laughs> Supposedly. So there was something that came out out of physical review letters. Ah, one of our maybe least read journals, but... <laughs> the PRL. There was a, two physicists, Joe Bovie and Glennis Ferrer, and they've made a conjecture that if such a fifth force existed, it would place constraints on the dark matter, so you cannot see it through direct detection using spin-independent interactions. So uh, how would one observe it then? Basically, they're saying that if there were future experiments that actually do detect this dark matter, then it would be so weak. This fifth force would be so weak that astrophysically it would be almost insignificant. Okay, you know, even if you have this fifth force that explains the discrepancy between what we observe and what our theories say right now, the fact that we have this fifth force would make the direct detection of the dark matter almost impossible. So I guess so we have a paradox there. <laughs> Right. So essentially what they're saying is they have this theoretical substance. Yes. And the reason they can't see this theoretical substance is because of a theoretical force that <laughs> might exist as well. <laughs> Brilliant. Wow. This stuff gets published, eh? <laughs> Man, I should do that too. Right. Here I thought science was based on experimentation and observation, but apparently the physicists play by different rules. <laughs> I think they create the rules. As I've always said, you know, experimentation just ruins a good theory. So. <laughs> it's overrated, huh? Is, is there any physical consequence to this fifth force at all? It's non-gravitational and it's very weak, so not sure what that would imply. It confirms the so-called standard model, but... Uh, anything that confirms the standard model is a-okay with me. <laughs> I don't want to have to learn a new model. I'm too old now. <laughs> uh, anyway, so this is cool stuff. It was published in uh, PRL. Pearls of Wisdom. Well, uh, unfortunately, this isn't more pearls of wisdom, but it is from our favorite journal. Oh, the PNAS. It'll be as popular as the iPhone. By the way, um, I just found out there's a card counting application you can get for the iPhone. I'm sure the uh, casinos would be none too happy about that one. <laughs> yeah, just lay it on, on the table there, right? So uh, but anyways, I wonder... what's happening in our favorite journal? <laughs> well, uh, this, uh, this particular article has to do with uh, Chinese food. Oh, Chinese food. Uh, this is actually Chinatown in Yokohama. Do, do they serve rice with every meal? Uh, rice, noodles, or soba. Okay, how about millet? Millet. I know there's some millet jelly, though. 
Researchers are discovering that early Chinese may not have eaten rice as the staple, but rather a millet might have been an important grain that was used as a staple for their diet. Oh, really? So what exactly is millet? Is it another grain similar to wheat or something hardier? Grasses, much like rice and wheat, that produce small edible seeds. Oh, okay. So although rice was domesticated in China's south, millet was apparently more prevalent in the north country. So how, how did they find out that, that a significant population was consuming? Is it from artifacts found at gravesites? Right. So in fact, they looked at the remains of dogs, pigs, and humans during that period Okay. who appeared to consume the plant. And it's interesting because millet is apparently a so-called C4 plant. So it has a very different system for metabolizing carbon than rice, which is a C3 plant. And this allowed them to measure different concentrations of isotopes in the bones of those animals. Uh-huh. And they could basically track the uh, progression of millet over time and, and location. Uh, these dogs and humans essentially had millet in their diet. The earliest forms of millet apparently were wild forms of millet, but then they eventually became cultivated in the north. So uh, those early millet farmers eventually, I guess, uh, switched over to rice. Huh. And that became the staple of their diet. Oh, okay, cool. Uh, led by Lucas Barton, an archaeologist at the University of California, Davis, and Seth Newsom, an ecologist at the Carnegie Institution of Washington. And it was published in our very favorite journal. Oh, the Proceedings. Of the National Academy of Sciences. PNAS. PNAS. And that's all for a look at recent developments in the world of science and technology. This is the Grox Science Show. Well, coming up in just a few minutes, Dr. Martin Myers will join us to discuss vaccine safety. So stay tuned. the Grox Science Show. Well, vaccines have revolutionized the modern world, conferring immunity to a wide variety of diseases. However, concerns regarding the safety of some vaccines may be resulting in some parents choosing to forego these important treatments. Just how safe and necessary are these vaccinations? Well, joins today to discuss this issue is Dr. Martin Myers. Dr. Myers is a professor of pediatrics and preventative medicine and community health. He is also the associate director for public health policy at the Sealy Center for Vaccine Development at the University of Texas Medical Branch in Galveston, Texas. He is the co-author with uh, Diego Pineda of the book, Do Vaccines Cause That? A Guide for Evaluating Vaccine Safety, which has just been released in paperback and explores this issue for a general audience. Uh, Dr. Myers, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grox Science Show. Thank you. Uh, well, certainly our pleasure that you're here, and this is, I think, a really very fascinating subject for uh, a lot of the listeners who are wondering just how safe are modern vaccines. Well, vaccines are quite safe. You can't say anything is 100% safe, and vaccines have some side reactions that are fortunately quite uh, uncommon, but they're really quite safe. And there's a lot of misinformation about vaccine safety that is frequently spread in various parts of the media uh, from concerned parents. And why do you think this is? 
Well, I, I think it's easy to understand. We give a lot of vaccines, and we give a lot more vaccines than we used to, and we give them at times when children are doing their most rapid development, and it's often the time where developmental problems uh, first become uh, apparent. And as a consequence, the, the coincidence of bad things being recognized in children and having received a vaccine um, occurs not uncommonly. And it's only uh, natural for people to say, well, I wonder if that actually was caused by the vaccine. The other side of it is that we don't see diseases anymore. Uh, I, I talk to the residents about this uh, frequently. We, we don't see them. The vaccines have been very, very successful, as you said in your opening. And we don't see hundreds of thousands of cases of diphtheria every year. And people don't realize that all these diseases are still out there. And if we lapse in our immunizations, they're at risk of coming back. And we had example in, in Minnesota recently of, of five children who developed invasive bacterial disease with haemophilus influenza type B. We haven't seen very many cases of that in the last 20 years since the vaccine came out. But with vaccine immunization levels going down, these diseases surface again, often in the unimmunized. But it's also important to know that they also appear in some of the immunized children for whom the vaccines didn't work, either because of their age or because they may have some unrecognized factor that's placing them at risk. In fact, one of the five children in Minnesota Minnesota wasn't known to be immune compromised until after she developed a severe invasive disease. So two parts about it. One is we don't see the diseases, so parents aren't scared like they used to be. The second thing is that there are some parents who are very concerned that their child may have been harmed by vaccines, and they talk as if they were harmed by vaccines. Cases, for example, in Africa, where fear about some vaccines led to their stop of immunization and then the reemergence of those diseases. That, that's correct. The, the polio eradication program, there was a problem in, in uh, the northern provinces of Nigeria where uh, there was a concern about the vaccine, and they stopped immunizing, and they had a, a substantial outbreak of polio, and it spread into five other countries. So those are very real. Maybe part of the confusion is uh, a lot of people don't understand just exactly how vaccines work. Well, the idea of a vaccine is to take either a weakened virus or bacterium or a piece of it and give it to the person so they, their body, their immune system thinks that they've been exposed and, and thinks that uh, it makes the immune response. And so when they actually do run into, say, measles, um, the body uh, attacks it uh, very rapidly and you don't get the infection. How can some of these vaccines then cause adverse reactions? They all are associated with some adverse reactions. Allergic reactions are can be quite severe, but they're very uncommon, like one in a million. With some of the new recent vaccines that they're being given to young teens and preteens, there's a problem with the young girls particularly fainting. It's not actually due to the vaccine, but it's due to the shot. So it's important that for those kids that they stay seated for 10 or 15 minutes after they had the vaccine to be sure they're not going to faint. And of course, there are other uh, side reactions. A measles vaccine, for example, causes fever in a, a number of kids about a week after they've gotten the vaccine. And some children who are prone to febrile seizures might might even have a febrile seizure as a consequence. That's, a, that's about one in a thousand of the young children who are susceptible to febrile seizures. And, and although febrile seizures don't cause any damage, uh, they're real scary. They're real scary for parents. So there are adverse events, and, but they're uncommon. 
we wouldn't tolerate the amount of adverse events that we, we see in after drugs in, in vaccines because we're giving vaccines mostly to uh, normal, healthy people. And so they're screened very directly for serious adverse events. Uh, well, one of the concerns you detail in your book, and in fact, a chapter titled that, is, well, what if my child is that one in a million? Well, that's right. And that's always a concern that people ask. And I usually try to answer that as saying, but now let's talk about what one in a million means. And one drop in a gallon of water, you line up a million people, how far they stretch and so on. To people who deal with numbers all the time, one in a million means rare. It can happen, but it's, um, uh, it's very rare. It's important that parents are aware of those types of things. So if somebody has a one in a million chance of having a severe allergic reaction, it's important that people be aware of those severe allergic reactions and what needs to be done. And that's often the reason that physicians and other health providers ask families to stay around for a little while after they've had a vaccine is to be certain that they don't have uh, an allergic reaction that needs to be treated. What are some of the vaccines that parents seem to be most concerned about? Well, it varies. In Europe, it's been the measles vaccine. There was a scare about whether measles vaccine might cause autism. That theory has been completely um, discredited, but there's still uh, parents who haven't uh, had their children immunized. And they, In England, they've had uh, epidemic of measles, outbreaks of measles. They had 63,000 cases of mumps. Uh, actually, we had mumps outbreak in the United States a couple of years ago as an extension from the United Kingdom, and they had one in Canada as well. In this country, much of the concern has uh, surrounded uh, the additive for vaccines called thimerosal, and that theory, too, has been completely discredited that it's being associated with autism. The data now are very robust uh, about that. So those have been sort of the, the big controversies uh, recently. There's concern that some vaccines could cause asthma. Well, we took that issue on. Maybe we should talk a little about the structure of the book, and then we'll come back and talk about the asthma issue. But what we did is we wrote a book for parents, and the reason we wrote this book was we realized there really wasn't any book that took on the issue of vaccine safety and, and how to sort your way through all the conflicting information that people hear about vaccine safety on talk shows and, and in, in the media and so on. And so the first section of the book, we tried to show people how to find reliable information and how to sort through the misinformation from information and where to go if they're going to use the internet, where's, where they can go and find reliable information. Places like Medline Plus is a good example, or our website if it's about vaccines, which is nnii.org. Because parents, they want to do what's best for the children, we all do, so it's important that they make informed decisions. So the second part of the book, it takes on uh, specific issues like do vaccines cause asthma, do vaccines cause autism, do vaccines overwhelm the immune system, and so on. And we try to apply the uh, principles that we wrote in the first part of the book, um, showing uh, how best to answer the question. And there are still questions uh, at the end of the chapter. We try to summarize that there's still questions so that people see where the information is good, what's reliable. We're not trying to advocate for anything. We're just trying to give information. Your listeners might be interested in the way in which we review our content, both for the website, but specifically for the book. Every section is reviewed by experts in the field for its accuracy. Be sure that I've got it right. I'm not an expert in absolutely everything. I I want to have other people look at it. And then uh, that's my first review. And then our second review was I had a group of parents who had no technical background. 
doctors or nurses, and I had them read it to see if the section was clear. And they were they were much more difficult. They circle words that they didn't understand how I'd use them, if they meant something different to them. Or my favorite story is the one where one grandmother reviewed a, a chapter in the beginning called Cause and Coincidence, and we're just starting on the book. And I got it back, and it was all marked up. And I said, well, what'd you think? And she said, well, I read it. I understood it. It's important. It sure was boring. <laughs> so uh, that one got rewritten. And that same reviewer, she kept finding words that I used differently than uh, she recognized them. Words like um, plausible. When we talk about theories, whether the theory could be plausible, what we're talking about is that in theory, it, it, it could happen. It doesn't mean it does, but it's plausible. But the way we use the word plausible in our regular conversation is that it's um, worthy of belief um, or factual. So at her suggestion, we actually put in a, a table of lots of words that we found that we, we were using as vaccine scientists one way and something different to the public. Well, it certainly is a very readable book uh, for the general public. Do you oh, think, thank you. Do, you. do you think it's very challenging, though, given the sense that popular media is geared towards sensational stories, getting out the real facts about vaccines? Yes, it is. It's it's uh, it's very difficult. And uh, what makes a good story? Uh, controversies in the media. It's a controversy could be two scientists differing, but more typically in, in these discussions, it's been scientists uh, who are differing with uh, parents who are concerned about that their child was injured by a vaccine, even though there's no evidence to support that. Well, it's, it's hard to. They call it balancing in the journalism trade. Uh, it's hard to balance that, that because that gives people who are, have concerns about whether their child was damaged or not, it gives them credibility and it gives them exposure. And if you hear something lots of times or after a while, it sounds like you've heard it before and people start to believe it. So, yes, it is. It is very difficult. That's one of the reasons we wrote the book. This actual fact was that people who come to our website and started saying, why don't you take those essays that you've been writing and make them into a book for us? Uh, and so that's really where it came from. The topics we write about are the topics of questions that parents uh, tell us uh, they'd like us to answer. Uh, sometimes they're very hard to answer, but uh, go ahead and do it. We've l learned very quickly when running the website that some of the things that interest me most uh, didn't interest the parents, and some of the things that in interested them surprised me. And so we started writing about the things that people email us about. For example, I have had a lot of people who've looked at my book and uh, said they like it, but they want me to do a second book because I didn't answer some of the things that they'd like me to address also. So there's going to be a second book, and maybe I'll be talking to you in a, another six months or a year again. Oh, we'd certainly like to have that. <laughs> <laughs> what are some of the uh, prime concerns parents have that actually didn't make it into this book? A lot of them have been asking questions about, uh, we don't see polio anymore, do we really need to give polio vaccine? And we don't really see very many cases of other diseases, do we, do we really need to give the vaccines and why do we need to give them when we're giving them? What's the logic of uh, giving the vaccines the way we do? What's, are there advantages with the schedule that's recommended or are some of these other vaccine schedules, uh, are they better and, and why? And so those are some of the issues. Also, people said, tell us what the disease is. Uh, and tell us, as you did in this book, what, what is known about the safety profile of the, of the vaccine, each individual vaccine. So uh, that's the next book. It's called Vaccines for You and Your Family, because we want to take on the issue also of uh, adult immunization and, and how important it is to immunize around children, particularly newborns, so that the newborn isn't exposed to diseases for which he or she are not old enough to have had vaccine immunity yet.
How important is it for the uh, the family doctor really to be conveying all this information also to the parents? I think it's it's really important. But I, but the the problem that family physicians and other health providers have is this limited time, and they want to answer these questions, but they also need to answer questions about feeding and diaper changing and having the baby sleep on its back and so on. There's a lot of material that has to be covered, and that's really one of the reasons is, is I, I wrote this book and we wrote, we write a lot of pamphlets that. Um, health providers can give uh, out to their patients about how to, how to find good, good information. And a lot of people use the Internet to find health information. And you can get a lot of information on the Internet, but you just need to know how to do it. If you use a search engine like Google or Yahoo, uh, you get misinformation as well as information. And that's why it's so important to start if you're doing Internet searches to, to start with a source that you know is uh, reliable to get the information. So I think it's very important. Uh, the health providers uh, provide the information, and one of the best things that they can do is tell people how to get good information. Not surprisingly, we found that a lot of physicians are, want to have our book in their office. As, as one of my colleagues said that the book was useful to him, too. He's a vaccinologist, and he said the reason is is you put all the information in there and you made it easy. If a mother doesn't want to read about every single study, you, you put them up in bullets so they can skip that part. But if they want to read it, it's, it's all there. And he said it's, it's useful to me because you did all the work for me. You've gotten, gone and collected all the information. Well, it really is eminently readable. Well, thank you very much. Um, you could sort of um, distill maybe a final message for people regarding vaccines and what they should know about them, and just really how safe they are. Well, I, I think vaccines are incredibly safe. They're, uh, they're new technologies, but uh, you can't say they, they are without risk. But in comparison to the risk of, of the uh, diseases they prevent, they are really remarkably uh, safe. Places to get information about vaccines um, include uh, our website, uh, www.nnii.org, the cdc.gov slash vaccines. Those are all uh, good places to, to go get information. Uh, and finally, I'm just curious, how did you become interested in this field? Well, I've been involved with uh, vaccines most of, most of my career. I uh, was involved in immunization law being written in, in the state of Iowa. They don't have 5,300 uh, cases of measles every year anymore. They went to zero. Then I worked in a laboratory for many years uh, working on uh, vaccines and vaccine development. And then I got very interested in teaching and heavily involved with that. And then ultimately, I ended up running the National Vaccine Program Office in the Office of the uh, Secretary of Health and Human Services, and where I was coordinating vaccine policy across um, the different agencies in government and with other, other stakeholders. So I've had sort of a, you might say, a varied uh, career, but most of it's involved uh, vaccines one way or the other. And, and then I took on this National Network for Immunization Information, which is really intended to be a place to provide information about vaccines and vaccine safety for anybody who wants uh, information that's reliable. Uh, the new book, again, is Do Vaccines Cause That? A Guide for Evaluating Vaccine Safety. Dr. Myers, I want to thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me. And you were just listening to Dr. Martin Myers discussing vaccine safety. This is the Grok Science Show. Well, coming up in just a few minutes, it's the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week. So stay tuned.
blue sky. Please tell us why you had to hide away for so Ready to play the game? It is the Grokatron 5000. It's our supercomputer formerly known as Deep Blue. Today, the Grokatron 5000 would like to know if uh, we're immune or we need to be vaccinated against the falling five items. So for the falling five items, uh, just want to know, are we immune or vaccinated against it? Maybe a little reason why. Uh, Dr. Myers, ready to play the game? Sure. Okay. Uh, item number one, are we immune or do we need to be vaccinated against reality television shows? <laughs> I don't think we have a vaccine yet for that one, so uh, hopefully we're immune. Okay. <laughs> Item number two is, uh, are we immune or vaccinated, or should we be vaccinated against the uh, American Insurance Group, AIG? Well, I guess uh, we, we, we wish we had a vaccine for that, don't we? But <laughs> uh, unfortunately, we don't. <laughs> That's a very expensive immunization, I guess. Right. <laughs> uh, number three is Texas Hold'em Poker. I, I think the the only solution to that is to be immune. Okay. <laughs> uh, number four is uh, Viagra. Well, I don't I don't know if I'd, I'd want to be immunized against that or immune. <laughs> All right, and finally, number five, it's uh, the iPod. Well, the the, the iPod, I, I don't think you can be immune to that, and we certainly don't have a vaccine for it. That's certainly been a quite quite a, a change in our society. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, Dr. Mize, I want to thank you for sticking around playing our game. And, of course, talking about your new book, again, which is Do Vaccines Cause That? A Guide for Evaluating Vaccine Safety. Thank you very much. You're very welcome. All right. And now it's time for this week's Question of the Week with our good friend, Forrest Gump. Forrest, how are you doing? Good, Dr. Lee. I'm Forrest. <laughs> they call me Forrest Gump. Well, yeah, uh, Forrest, so how you been? <laughs> I've been having a swell time. My mom used to say, the neocortex is like a box of chocolates. It's kind of gooey, but it makes all the learning possible. <laughs> well, your, your mother was a very wise, wise woman. Yes, thank God for the NIH. All right, well, thanks, Forrest, for uh, enlightening us into uh, all the fabulous workings of the neocortex. Thank you, Dr. Lee. And thank you, Forrest. And that's all for this week's edition of Grok Science. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us at your Grok Science, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.